If you were with us last Sunday morning, you will know that as we moved into Acts chapter 19, the Apostle Paul found himself in the city of Ephesus, one of the main cities in Asia Minor in antiquity. This morning, we're continuing to have our focus in the book of Acts, but around two years have passed since this time last Sunday. It's not just the clocks that went back, but here we are. Two years have disappeared over the last seven days. And so the church in Ephesus is beginning to grow They're beginning to have an influence not only on individuals and families, but on the entire city as well. And in fact, the scripture says, over the whole province of Asia. And so that will give you a little of the backdrop to our study this morning. So we begin chapter 19 at verse 23. About that time, there arose a great disturbance about the way. A silversmith named Demetrius, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought in no little business for the craftsmen. He called them together, along with the workmen in related trades, and said, Men, you know we receive a good income from this business. And you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. He says that man-made gods are no gods at all. There is danger not only that our trade will lose its name, but also the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited, and the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. When they heard this, They were furious and began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Soon the whole city was in an uproar. The people seized Gaius Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companion from Macedonia, and rushed as one man into the theater. Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples would not let him. Even some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, sent him a message begging him not to venture into the theater assembly was in confusion. Some men were shouting one thing, some another. Most of the people did not even know why they were there. The Jews pushed Alexander to the front, and some of the crowd shouted instructions to him. He motioned for silence in order to make a defense before the people. But when they realized he was a Jew, they all shouted in unison for about two hours, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Recently for some light bedtime reading. I've been reading two biographies of George Washington. The first is entitled A Life by Ron Chernow, and it's highly recommended. It's an excellent read. And it's been fascinating to see the unfolding story of the life of Washington. The other is not quite a biography in Washington, so I slightly misled you. It's called The American Spirit by David McCulloch. And anything by McCulloch, of course, is worth reading, as you know. And McCulloch focuses in on our founding fathers. And he tries to make this point and makes it, in fact, very well. He says, in our minds, we imagine our founding fathers looking noble and stately. We see them as inspirational figures. And he makes the point that 
they look that way because at least in the popular mindset, we imagine them as they were in those early portraits. Of course, there's a famous one by Gilbert Stuart, and the temptation is to think Washington was always like that. Now, on the other hand, I'm fairly convinced that anyone can look noble and stately and imposing if they scrub up well. And here is my evidence. <laughs> now, in Acts chapter 19, the focus is, as you know, on the city of Ephesus. Ephesus is a busy, vibrant city, a population of about 300,000 people. And here is the Apostle Paul faithfully ministering in the city of Ephesus. Last week, as we saw, just a handful of people had responded to his message. But over the next two years, each day, he would go to the lecture hall of Tyrannus and explain the gospel, speaking into the hearts and souls, not just of individuals, but entire families. And then sections in the community of Ephesus were beginning to be impacted by the gospel. And the passage we're coming to this morning here in Acts 19 highlights for us this. That who we are often comes out when we are under significant pressure. In reading Cherno's book on Washington, Washington says this in June 1775, when he was appointed to the office of general for the American armies, the Continental Congress. And after his appointment, he quietly speaks to Patrick Henry, one of the other founding fathers, and this is what he says. Mr. Henry, please remember what I'm about to tell you. From the day I entered into the command of the American armies, I date my personal fall and the ruin of my reputation. Noble, imposing, supremely confident, no. Washington, like each of us, facing a major, significant challenge. Our often our minds are crowded with doubt, maybe disappointment, depending on the circumstance, a little fearful, possibly, uncertain, probably. That was Washington. Because he realized he had to go up against the most powerful empire of the day. And the thing I suspect that pushed Washington and his colleagues forward, that banded them together, was this. That they realized there was a better way of life. But it would be costly. With all of that as an introduction to where we're going this morning, let's step into the passage in front of us. And in verse 23, what is it we discover? About that time, 
that's Paul in Ephesus, there was a great disturbance about the way. And the phrase, the way, we noted it again last week, is what? It's about the gospel. People responding to the love and grace of Christ encountered in the gospel. And we discover the silversmith named Demetrius, and without going into it all again, what do we discover? That he called together a number of tradesmen and auxiliary trades who were involved in making silver idols of Artemis and selling them. And they were complaining and objecting. And they were complaining and objecting to what? To the impact of the gospel. Back in the first century, as is the case in the 21st century, sometimes folks will be very comfortable as long as the church worships within its four walls on a Sunday morning and the individualistic and privatization of religion is a good thing in their mind. And that as long as you keep it to Sunday morning, that's fine. But as soon as you try to live out your faith, as soon as you take a spiritual or a moral stance for an issue, you may find yourself coming under pressure. And it may not be a riot as it was in Ephesus. I find that hard to imagine in downtown Greenville. But what was taking place was this, that the gospel had impacted lives, individuals, families, as we've already said. Communities were discovering the love and grace and intimacy with God was possible. The joy and the wonder of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit became a living reality. The Holy Spirit's equipping and enabling them to live out their faith day by day was now a living reality. And it was transforming the city of Ephesus. And now those who were losing money were pushing back, pushing back hard. And this young group of disciples in Ephesus were discovering this. There is no shortcut to maturity in the Christian faith. If you're sometimes like me, you may be tempted to pray, Lord, do something remarkable in my life. Do something that will empower me to move to the next level in my faith and to go from one victory after another against sin. Enable me, please, to experience one blessing after another. Do something remarkable. Do something notable. And then I remember that the Scripture model is not that. God works in that way from time to time, no doubt. We've seen it several times as we've worked our way through Acts. But the normal model of Christian growth, development, maturity comes over the protracted period, day after day after day after day, when God is refining and molding and shaping us 
calling us to be more Christ-like, where the Holy Spirit is at work, not just in our prayer life, but in our moral life, not just in our moral life, but in our way of thinking, not just in our way of thinking, but in our desires and in our finances and in every area of our lives. And it is that long, faithful, consistent obedience in the same direction, day after day, month after month. And I would have to tell you that the Christians I admire most have walked that path for years. And in their heart and mind and soul, there is a settled maturity that the Lord has it. He's got it. And you can trust him. And he's got you, whatever you're facing. He's got you. Ordinary people, as they were in Ephesus, ordinary and every day, going about living out their faith, seeking to be faithful to the things of God. But please understand this. It is a remarkable, momentous thing when ordinary, everyday people submit and surrender every aspect of their life to the rule and reign of Christ. And why is that remarkable? Because they're ordinary and everyday and submit to an extraordinary God. That's what was going on in Ephesus. That's why it was making an impact. That's why the city was being transformed. And now they come up against pressure. And not just everyday pressure of, well, you believe your thing, I'll believe mine, we'll get along. That's not what's going on here. What is going on here is this. Verse 28 Silversmith has called them together. He's laid out. They are in significant danger of losing their income. And at verse 28, when they heard this, they were furious and began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Soon the whole city was in an uproar. The people seized Gaius Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companion from Macedonia, rushed as one man into the theater. And then you have the section about Paul wanting to be there and others giving him advice saying, Paul, don't go, it's too dangerous. And in verse 32, the assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Most of the people did not even know why they were there. And what does that tell you? It tells you that right there and then mob rule had taken over and for two hours it was impossible to quieten the mob. Eventually, the city clerk speaks and they settle down because he tells them if you don't behave you're going to end up in court and if you have a grievance, take it to court and he's highlighting for them the rule of law. One of the things that categorizes mob rule is this. We will intimidate until they capitulate. Let me say it again. We will intimidate until they capitulate. No listening. 
No genuine engagement. No trying to work out what is going on here. That was mob rule. Now let me pause for a second. Some Sunday mornings you will know that on the odd occasion we deal with some controversial issues. Some of those issues are sensitive to say the least. And this morning I want to close on a controversial note in these last five or ten minutes. So if you're here for the first time this morning, let me ask you please to be patient with me. If you are visiting this morning, I would have to confess I have one of the most patient congregations in the nation given what they have to put up with from me on a Sunday morning. So please join them in their patience this morning. Try not to anticipate what I'm about to say. Try not to mentally interrupt where I'm going with the application of this passage. So be gracious to me this morning if you would. Because I think some of you may be sitting this morning saying, Richard, I understand all that you've said. I get your point about consistent faithfulness, the same direction for a long time. I get that. I get that when the gospel breaks into a person's life, not only does God draw that individual to himself, he then gives them the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit to equip them to live out their faith. I get your third point about the gospel impacting individuals and families and the entire city. I get all of that. But Richard, what I want this morning is this. I want a challenge. Give me a challenge for the week ahead. Be clear, be simple. Something I can identify with. Something I can get my head around. But before I give you this challenge... Let me give you an illustration. And it's this. Last month, early in October, we received from China a delegation of religious leaders from the Sichuan province. And they joined us for the 11 o'clock service. Some of you were there. They toured our building. They visited the school. They sat in briefly on some Sunday school classrooms. They went down to the Ignite service for a brief moment and they were thrilled and delighted to be here. And after the morning service, we went off to lunch together. And during the course of our lunch, they asked several questions. And one of the very early questions they asked was this. Why do you have a flag in the main sanctuary. Justice John Kittredge, who is a member here at First Pres, has served as both a deacon and elder in years gone by, was also at that lunch. And the question they had for John was this, how can you as a justice of the South Carolina Supreme Court be a member of a church? What we tried to say in response was this. That love for flag and love for country and dedication and commitment to the judicial branch of government or any branch of government is not incompatible with our faith. 
but in fact to complement each other. And the point we made was this, that Christians make great citizens because we care for our nation. We pray for our nation. We pray for those in political office. We don't always agree with what they do. We don't always support every policy. But we're going to pray. And here's my first challenge. What would our election be like on Tuesday if even for the next 48 hours we stopped criticizing and began to pray? That's a hard thing to do, to live out your faith. When you feel strongly about an issue, and you believe that someone is heading in a direction you don't agree with, prayer brings you to your knees. It brings you to that point where you pray, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Pray for those running for office as we did this morning. Pray for those currently in office. Pray for those you fundamentally, passionately disagree with. Pray for them. And here's my second challenge. Vote. Please vote. Don't withdraw. Don't become apathetic or indifferent and leave it up to someone else. Participate in the process. Pray for the nation. Seek the will and purpose of God for our future. Vote. And there's a sense in which I don't really mind whether you're Democrat, Republican, Independent. Vote. Listen to those you're thinking of voting for. Listen to their policies. Hear their heartbeat. Look at their record. And then vote. And do it prayerfully. The Apostle Paul, when he's writing to Timothy, says this, pray for those in positions of power. Those were some of the last words recorded in the Scripture from Paul. Paul was about to go on trial for his life, and he was praying for those who would judge his case. If we are serious if we genuinely want the gospel to impact not only our own lives and our family members and our community, but the city and this nation, it begins and ends in prayer. Pray for Tuesday, please. We're called to be salt and light, not heat and hatred. Here's my penultimate challenge. If you find yourself getting involved in rhetoric that is distasteful and demeaning, please stop. Please stop. Don't feed what goes on out there. Rise above that. There is a better way of life. What did we say about Washington, 1775, when he was willing to step up? He believed there was a better way. We believe there is a better way. We're committed to it prayerfully, fully. 
be salt and light. Let's pray. Gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, as we prayerfully seek your presence, enable us amidst the complex challenges that lie before us as a nation to be refreshed and renewed by the transforming nature of your extravagant love. Impart to us a profound sense of gratitude, thankful that in your sovereign purposes, we are a people conceived in liberty, shaped by adversity, dedicated to equality, while fully dependent on you, for in God we trust. Father, grant to each of us a renewed sense of your calling, sustained by the enduring values we hold to be self-evident. Equip us by your Spirit to be a people defined by consensus through compassion, expertise enlightened by experience, leadership resistant to polarization and expediency, yet intentional in unity, honesty, transparency, and integrity, as together we seek to be one nation under God. Father, we bring our prayers to you this morning, and in through the name of Christ our Lord. Amen.